Karen and I have enjoyed watching Madam Secretary. Maybe some of you have seen the show. It's ran for, what, six seasons or something, where Tia Leone plays this Secretary of State. And uh, actually, in one of the episodes, Madeleine Albright, who actually was the first woman to serve as Secretary of State in our country, uh, plays herself in an episode. It's great. She's, she's given Tia Leone advice on how to be Secretary of State. I was thinking about that this week when I read about a time when Madeleine Albright, the real one, <laughs> was on a panel with the late Elie Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor and author. And Wiesel asked the other folks on the panel this question. He said, of all the characters in the Bible, which one do you think was the unhappiest? Unhappiest character in the Bible. So some of the people in the room said, well, Job, duh. I mean, think about everything that guy suffered. That's obvious. But others said, well, what about Moses? Moses leads his people all the way to the promised land and is not permitted to enter. And then others said, well, what about Mary? watching her son be executed. Surely, she would be the unhappiest. And then everybody looks at Wiesel, who asked the question, like, okay, what's the answer? And he said, I think you're wrong. I think the unhappiest character in the Bible is God. And I've thought about that, and I think he's right. During Lent here at Savior, we've been praying, oh, that we might know the Lord. Well, a part of that is also to know the sad heart of God, the broken heart of God, the wrecked heart of God. And in tonight's gospel passage, Jesus shows us that heart. And as he pours out his feelings, we learn what it is that makes God sad, which matters for every one of us here. Because if we don't know what that is, we could find ourselves becoming part of it. Well, the moment happens as Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And not only does Jesus know where he's going, he knows why. He says it this way, I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me and I am under a heavy burden until it is accomplished. So Jesus is now working his way toward Jerusalem. He's probably in a small town, maybe five, ten miles at the most outside of the city. When our gospel picks up, Luke 13, verse 31, some Pharisees come to Jesus and say to him, leave this place, go somewhere else, because Herod wants to kill you. Now, just as a quick reminder, the Pharisees, who are the most observant and committed religious people among the Jews, have already had a meeting for one agenda item. How should we go about killing Jesus? So they've already had a discussion. They've worked it out on the whiteboard. They have their plan. But now they've learned that Herod the most powerful political ruler, also wants Jesus dead. Now this is perfect because now Herod can do the messy job of killing and the Pharisees just have to tell Jesus, uh, 
the government has started a manhunt to find you, hunt you down, and kill you. And he will obviously run for his life, and then we don't have to deal with him anymore. So they do. They say, Jesus, get out of here. Go hide. Now, I have never gotten a death threat. I don't know what that's like, but it, it seems terrifying, <laughs> truly. And this is no idle threat. Herod has already killed Jesus' cousin, John. So Jesus knows intimately in his own family what can happen. And, and John got it because he had the chutzpah to say, Herod, you have no right to divorce your wife just so you can hook up with your brother's wife. So what does Jesus say when he gets a death threat from somebody who has the forces to carry it out? He says, go tell that fox. Now, in a culture where every household has chickens, fox doesn't mean kind of cute and (laughs) kind of ingenious. It means destroyer. The fox is the one who will slip into your chicken yard and leave nothing but a few feathers and and a couple broken bones. And so how much courage does it take for Jesus to say, go tell that fox? Last Friday, as many of you know, a new law took effect in Russia um, trying to prevent fake news. And so now reporters or anyone who calls what's happening in Ukraine either a war or an invasion, those two words, will get up to three years in prison and depending on the circumstances could get up to 15. So now the remaining news media in in Russia are dutifully using the approved phrase special military operation. Well, Jesus is in a climate just as repressive as Russia. It's the equivalent of saying, go tell Putin, that fox, that destroyer. But Jesus is not afraid of Herod. He is not afraid to name who Herod really is, a destroyer. He's, not afra- He's never, ever going to let Herod take him off his mission. Jesus says, you know what I'm going to be doing? I'll tell you where you can find me. I'm going to be driving out demons because I take care of people's evil and compulsive powers and deliver them and set them free. I'm going to be healing people today and tomorrow. That's what I'm doing. And on the third day, I'll reach my goal. I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. So you want to kill me? Well, actually, death is what I expect as a prophet. Now, you and I don't probably fully get what Jesus' reference to Jerusalem but let's just do a little Sunday school refresher. Where does the prophet Uriah get killed? Good guess. And what, how about the prophet Zechariah? Jerusalem. And where do they try to kill and almost kill Jeremiah? Jerusalem. The history writer Josephus says, King Manasseh spared not even the prophets, some of whom he slaughtered daily so that Jerusalem ran with blood. And Jesus knows all that. And Jesus knows, since Jerusalem did that, I know what they're going to do to me. But it's not going to take me off mission. 
Now, let's pause and take in for a moment here that Jesus is rejected by the political leaders and by the religious leaders. Herod, the political leader, wants to kill him, and so do the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Or today, as we might in our language say, Jesus is rejected by the culture and by the church. Now, I've noticed that we Christians are not really surprised when the culture rejects Jesus. We're like, yeah, par for the course, what I could have told you. But how about when the church does it? When many Christians reject Jesus in their lives, then we are just bowled over, we're surprised, and we should not be. As Jesus told us, pouring out his heart, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed, I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you weren't willing. Now Jerusalem here stands as like a name for the whole nation and by extension really all for all the people of God. And Jesus repeats her name just like David did when he grieved the loss of his son. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son. And Jesus is here, is only 30 years old. So what does he mean when he says, how often I've longed, how long I've wanted to gather you together? If you go over to the Morton Arboretum, there's some of these huge sculptures in a display called Human Plus Nature by Daniel Popper. They're made out of fiberglass and steel, and to me, the most dramatic one is like 26 feet tall or something like that. It's this huge, loving figure looking down kind of over the grounds, and, and in that sculpture, the person is like tearing open their chest cavity so you can actually see inside. In fact, if you want to, you can walk inside. And what Jesus is doing right here is he's like tearing open his, his chest so you can see his beating heart and you can walk right into it. And he now speaks as the eternal son of God, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And he says, from the beginning, I've longed to gather you together. That's all I've wanted in these just few painful and prophetic words. It's as if Jesus is saying, as God and on behalf of God, how often I've longed to gather you, but Adam and Eve, you disobeyed me. How often I've longed to gather you, but Cain, you murdered your brother. How often I've longed to gather you, but even while I was giving Moses my holy words, you're down there throwing a pagan orgy and telling the golden calf you made that it rescued you, not me. How often I've longed to gather you, but you rejected me as your king and said, we want to be like every other country in the world and we'll make our own king. How often I've longed to gather you, but you've chased down my prophets like Elijah and you funded thousands of prophets of Baal. You even burned your children in the fire to Molech. How often I've longed to gather you, but when I come in the flesh as God, you try to throw me over a cliff. And now here I am, nearing the gates of Jerusalem, 
And I still long to gather you together. Everything within me just wants to hold you close. And you won't let me. Instead, what happens is you reject the prophets, the ones that I send, the people who speak for me, the messengers. When uh, Hurricane Katrina pounded New Orleans, the very first responders activated were from a Coast Guard base in Mobile. And the head guy there, Ian McConnell, was said, okay, take your five crews and these, your five H-60 helicopters and do nonstop rescue missions over New Orleans and rescue people who are stranded up on their rooftops from the waters. So McConnell and his crew, when they fly into New Orleans, they are there before any news cameras have even reached the city. And they're just shocked. There's this, tr there's this train line that runs along the ocean in New Orleans, and when the storm surge came in, it actually lifted up the rail track off its gravel bed and shoved it like 15 feet. Uh, or maybe it was 150. And then they see this houseboat that's floating down Highway 90. I mean, it's just insanity out there. So they start finding people, and they said on the first uh, three rescue missions that our, our team did, we, we rescued 89 people, three dogs, and a cat. And then they delivered them over to the helipad at the Superdome and, and set them down there. And he said, but on our fourth mission out, we didn't save a single person. And it wasn't for lack of trying. He said, we would hover over the house and we'd go, come on, we've got you. And they'd be like, no, we're staying. And they're like, you can't stay. It, it, it's dangerous. And they're like, no, just throw down food and water. We're good. And they're like, no, it is unhealthy. The waters are, con you know, contagioned. And they're going to stay high for a long, long time. And they're like, no. And he said, I felt, I felt angry. I'm like, we are wasting precious fuel. And you have no idea how much trouble you're in. And I think that's what's going on for Jesus right here. And so he says to Jerusalem, I just want to rescue you. I just want to gather you. That's all I've wanted is to be close to my people. But you don't let me. And your house is now left to you desolate. And what does that mean? Well, it has two meanings, I think. The first immediate meaning is that the city of Jerusalem and its temple will be utterly destroyed. It will be left desolate. And that's why some days later, when Jesus finally sees Jerusalem off in the distance, he breaks down crying and he says, he wept over the city and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And sadly, what he prophesies is exactly what happens 40 years later. But the second meaning, the broader meaning, 
is a warning to all of God's people at all times and in all places, including us here tonight. From his deepest heart, Jesus says, how often I've longed to gather you. But if you refuse me, if you run away, you will suffer what it is like to be unprotected by me and you'll be left desolate. I gotta tell you, friends, one of the deepest pains I have as a pastor is when somebody starts out deconstructing their faith, often a good and necessary process, and they end up ditching Jesus altogether. It wrecks me. It happens just like it did in Jesus' day. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And when that happens, Jesus is not defensive. He doesn't run after him and try to, was it something I said? You know what he does? He looks at the ones who are still there and says, how about you? You want to stay? I've allowed suffering in your life. Do you also want to go? You can't stand to be identified with parts of the church. Do you also want to go away? And after all of that prophetic storm surge of words that lays us low, finally Jesus gives us hope. There is hope in that one little word, until. Until. Look, he says, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus does not say to his people, you will never see me again. He says, you won't see me until. Judgment is real, but it doesn't have to last. There's hope for you. You can see me again. You will see me again when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus is quoting Psalm 118, which many scholars think was used when the king would arrive in Jerusalem and the people would be gathered on either side of the gate and and they would sing out, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Jesus is saying, you'll see me when you recognize the people God sends you and you receive them. When you listen to the prophets instead of running them off. When you listen to me instead of killing me when your heart is different than it is now, when you're humble and receptive to God's word, even when it's hard to hear. So what does this mean for all of us here, friends, tonight? You and I, God's people. Well, as I've tried to stay with this cry of Jesus' heart, I think I would put our response in eight words. Listen to God's prophets and work on changing. Listen to God's prophets and work on changing. The choice, he says, is between the Jerusalem that stones him and the Jerusalem that receives him. And that raises the question, well, how do I tell a true prophet from a fake one? Because there's plenty of fakes. There always have been, there always will be. Well, the true prophet, the ones that are like Uriah, Zechariah, Jeremiah, Elijah, and Jesus, they do two things. They challenge our idolatry, and they challenge our injustice. They always do those two things. You can tell them because they do. (laughs) So 
Let's break that down a little. I mentioned this a little bit, I think, in the Hosea sermon, but idolatry is when we say, I love you, God, with all my heart, and functionally, that's not true. We are letting other things shape our lives, and we love them more than we actually love God. Jesus taught us very clearly, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. There's nothing higher or more, it should get more of you than God. But it does raise the question, does it not? Why is it I can easily binge watch a show, but if I try to binge pray or binge read the Bible, I think it's crazy or meritorious. So idolatry and injustice. Now injustice is when we say we care about people, but we actually care about ourselves more and we accept or ignore the suffering of others that we would be able to in some way help. And Jesus, the prophet, taught us just as like a straightforward question, uh, instructions, excuse me. He's like, okay, when you have a dinner, you guys have dinners, right? The next time you have a dinner, here's what I want you to do. When you're making your guest list, invite, quote, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Oh, and you'll be blessed. Then why do I know so few people who are really on the margins let alone have had them in. Because our instinctual nature is to invite the person who has good social skills, <laughs> who has advantages, who's a pleasure to be with, who's easy to be with. And maybe the person that requires a little more of me, ah, no, maybe next time. Now, if you and I feel uncomfortable or defensive with questions like these, then we know exactly why God's people throughout history have had this very bad track record of not listening to prophets. Now, for example, we think, we all think we're highly committed Christians, and I believe we are. And we think, therefore, we would have totally supported Martin Luther King. Absolutely, would have been on his side 100%. His prophetic work was amazing. Well, maybe and maybe not. History says most white Christians in America at that time did not. There were some. But most thought MLK was radical, a communist, an unnecessary troubler of the American way of life, a playboy, a plagiarizer, and a danger. Am I willing, eight words, to listen to the prophets and work on changing? on this particular issue of race, I haven't been until painfully recently. I knew full well what the prophets say. It's not that hard. But I hadn't owned it. I hadn't made it like something I really want to press into and learn. No, something like I want to change and grow in. And I want to, I want to be different than I am now in this area of my life. And I wasn't suffering from racial injustice. I had jobs and opportunities. So for me, it remained optional. And then for me, what, what was my kind of moment was the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. There was just something about innocent jogger getting hunted down like a deer that just, I couldn't take it. 
and there was a hashtag, run for Ahmad. And I forget how long you were supposed to run, but I, I did that. I did my run. And as I'm out there running in Wheaton, I'm thinking to myself, I can run into any neighborhood and nobody will follow me in a truck. Nobody will stop me and ask me, what the heck are you doing here? Nobody would hassle me or God forbid, shoot at me. And I, I, I just, I thought, I, I realized I've been complacent. It hasn't been my issue because it hasn't had to be my issue. And that lets injustice continue. And it, friends, it, it laid across my conscience and it has continued to lie there. And I'll tell you what, sometimes it's hard to face. Why has it taken me so long? It, I had to face that. I, I had to face like... Uh, Oh, I have to learn. I started reading books. I started listening to podcasts about what it's like to be a black person in America today, about what it's like to be an Asian person in America today as hate crimes are on the rise. And honestly, taking in the reality and the intensity of that is fierce. To stay present to that is hard. There's days where I'm like, I got some of my own struggles. I need something positive and encouraging. Not to mention, I enjoy feeling competent. And now, I, want, I would like to be part of a move of discipleship among us where that is part and parcel of how we grow as believers here at Savior. And I feel inadequate to do so. Many of you are further along. God bless you. If you have ideas, go. Great. And it's in a, the reason I bring this all up is it's in a moment like this when the prophets are speaking and we're starting to wrestle that there's this easy opt-out that says something like this, you know, I don't really have to change. I don't really have to do all this hard work. I know Jesus loves me just the way I am. And to that, Henry Nouwen says this, while Jesus brought great comfort and came with kind words and a healing touch, he did not come to take all our pains away. Much that is worthwhile comes only through confrontation. So on I stumble. I bought, I went out and bought an African-American commentary on the Bible. I didn't have one. How did I get out of theological training? Now, it was a different era. I get that. But what was wrong with that? And our vestry has had conversations around this last year. Thankfully, we were able to be part of doing some things for minority communities for which I'm truly grateful. So let me ask you, where for you tonight, friends, is it hard to listen to the prophets and work on changing? What, what is that area for you in your life? Is it around chastity? Is it about dethroning money? Your craving, your anxiety, is it forgiving that person who so hurt you? And you don't want to hear the prophets on that. Is it turning away from wrath? How you and I respond to the people that God sends brings protection or it brings judgment. We can be gathered in by Jesus, which is all he longs for, or we can refuse and be desolate.
Jesus' arms are open. And so is our faith.